I'm going to be continuing what I've been talking about, the same thing. And just like Charlie was singing in these songs, you know, it's just about relationship with the Lord, which all of us know. But what I've been trying to do is to bump this up a notch to where relationship with the Lord isn't just nice. If it happens, it would be good. I should give more time to it. I've been trying to establish that this is the heart of what God saved us for. John chapter 3, verse 16 The point I was trying to get across in that is that this eternal life, our intimacy with God, isn't just for those who want to go on deeper with the Lord and maybe just have an added dimension, but that is what salvation is all about. And I can say this, that if a person has their sins forgiven, is born again, is going to heaven, and doesn't have intimacy with the Lord, they've missed the point of salvation. That's a radical way of saying it. Most people would say, no, the point of salvation is missing hell. I'm trying to say that, no, that's not it. That's one of the wonderful benefits. And man, it's an awesome benefit. And if that's all there was to salvation, it would be wonderful to preach that. But that is not what the scriptures teach, that salvation is all about. Salvation is about having a relationship with God. And it just so happens that as you obtain relationship with God, one of the perks, one of the great benefits is that we get to miss hell. Man, that's awesome. But you know what? The Lord died to redeem you. If there was no hell, the Lord, I believe, still would have died to bring man back into fellowship with him. If all we did was just cease to exist at death, I believe Jesus still would have come and have died because that's what John 3.16 is sharing is the purpose of salvation. And I believe that to present it any other way is actually to misrepresent what God wants to do. And because we've done it that way to a large degree, we've got people who don't have a motivation for relationship with God because that wasn't the purpose of their salvation. Their purpose of salvation was to skip hell. It's inoculated them against the gospel. It causes a lot of problems. So we talked about that. We showed about how Paul and Silas, this is really what made their relationship with God what it was. If you want to be able to go through a hard time, like being beaten and thrown in the stocks and put in the dungeon, and if you want to be able to survive that, the way to do it is to have such a relationship with God that if deliverance comes, doesn't matter. Amen. You weren't praising God just to get deliverance. You were praising God because you really loved God. Man, that's a radical thought. That's really good. So I've just been trying to impact on us that the real focus of salvation should be relationship with God, not forgiveness of sins, not missing hell, not ministry, not anything else. All of those things are wonderful in their place, but nothing can occupy the place that relationship with God was meant to possess in our life. And so that's the point we've been trying to get across. Here's another way of saying it. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. You know, this verse is what's commonly called the Great Commission, and we use this to emphasize our debt to go preach the gospel to other people. But notice that, again, here's the way that we've just changed this. I don't know who decided that it was worth changing or whatever, but we've just changed this to say that, you know, the real thing is to get the people born again. Go tell them, men, get them born again. This specifically says, go teach them to observe all things, all things. And people have just said, well, 
you know, prosperity, healing, deliverance, all of these other things. Let's not make an issue on that. Let's just talk about the forgiveness of sins. Let's not turn anybody off. Let's just deal with the most basic element of salvation. And so we don't teach them to observe all things. We teach them, you just confess Jesus as Lord and skip hell and that's it. And we've changed what this is saying. But that word teach them to observe all things literally is the word that is translated disciple all throughout the Bible. Matter of fact, the NIV even translates this, go make disciples. And it's followed up in the 20th verse. You can tell that that's what it's talking about because in the 20th verse it says teaching them to observe all things, all things. The emphasis here is that the Lord commanded us not to go make converts, but to make disciples. And somewhere the church has changed this message to where, well, disciples is for the mature. Disciples is step two, three, four, five, whatever. But the message is, let's go get them born again first. I don't think that you can find it. Matter of fact, here's a radical statement. Did you know that Jesus never preached on being born again? (laughs) It's quiet in here. I'm going to say some radical things. And again, you listen to Bob and Dave and all these guys that are so much older and more mature. (laughs) And let them balance me out. I know that you have a tendency to overstate things. But Jesus talked about being born again to Nicodemus. And he was trying to make a point that you just don't grow into. I mean, there is a thing where you become born again in the same way that you became born physically. He told that. He used it in John chapter 3, but he never ministered it. He never taught it to the people. Jesus never preached being born again. That's a radical statement. You say that to most people today, and it's just like, you know, this is like the central plank. This is where most of our evangelical evangelistic efforts stand is on being born again. We've got to get them born again. Get them converted first, and then let's go on to something else. Jesus never told you to get a person converted And then step two, three, four, five, six, seven and stuff. He told us to go and make disciples. And I believe that the church should be preaching to make disciples, not to make converts. And because we've lessened the standards and told people basically, you can get in on this level and you don't have to do anything else. Let's just get you born again. That leads to things like I was sharing yesterday that 33% or something of all quote-unquote born-again Christians in the United States still support abortion and still believe that as long as you're spiritual, whether it's new age or anything else, that's fine, just as long as you're spiritual. That does not reflect to me the attitude of a person who's been truly born again. Being born again has become nearly popular in our society. People flaunt that because it's actually a popular thing. It gains them acceptance with some people. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with a true concept of being born again the way that Jesus taught it. But I'm saying that we've changed the gospel message to where being a disciple is not the bottom line. That's not for everybody. That's for those that want to go on and do something special and those that want to be a preacher or something. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said to go and make disciples. And I think that that ought to be the message that we're preaching. We ought to be preaching to people making an absolute, total commitment to the Lord. And of course, there is a growth process, but I'm saying that that ought to be what a person is committing to and moving in that direction and growing towards. And because we've just chosen to change the standard, well, let's just get them born again. We've created actually the deadness and a lot of the spiritual dullness that we see in our churches. I really believe that. And again, it all comes back to the fact that we haven't made disciples. We've gone out and made converts. And, you know, some people could argue and say, but, man, getting these people born again, we got to get them into heaven. That's the most important thing. This life is just like this. 
you know, and compared to eternity, and we've got to put first things first. And so getting them born again is wonderful, even if it makes the church as a whole spiritually dead because we aren't disciples. It's better to get lots of people born again than to have a few that are really turned on to the Lord and let these others go to hell. Well, again, that's short-term thinking. And I really believe that if we had people who were disciples, learners of Christ, people who were modeling Christ, do you know what the end result would be? That we would evangelize the world more if every person who claimed the name of Christ was truly modeling and reflecting Christ, we would make a bigger impact than we ever have before. Let me give you a scripture that will kind of verify this out of John chapter 2. This is Jesus, his very first appearance in Jerusalem after he began his ministry. After he started his ministry, this is his first time in Jerusalem. This is when he drove the money changers out of the temple the first time. There's twice that he did this at the very beginning of his ministry and at the very end. And this is the first time he drove the money changers out of the temple, etc. And anyway, he talked about destroying this temple and raising it up. And verse 23, John 2:23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover... In the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. You know the word believe right there is, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Anybody know? There you go. That's what I was trying to say. That's that word right there. They believed on him, but in verse 24, Jesus did not commit himself. You know what the word for commit is? It's the same word. In other words, many believed on him, but he didn't believe in them. That's what it says. He didn't commit himself or he didn't believe on them. Because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Did you know that most people today, if you went to Jerusalem, and Jesus said that he came to save the world, he came to draw all men unto himself, his purpose was to evangelize and to bring men to the Father. He performed these miracles, and it says many. I don't know what many means, but let's say hundreds or thousands. You know what we would have done? Man, we would have armed them with tracks. We would have thought this is awesome. Hundreds, thousands of people born again. Let's get them going. Let's go throughout Jerusalem. Let's have them share. Let's get each one of them doing something. And we would have armed them with tracks. We would have mobilized these people some way or another. And we would have had them out there telling other people that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus wouldn't do it. He didn't commit himself to them because he knew that they weren't disciples. He knew that they weren't fully committed unto him. You know, his attitude towards evangelism is different than the attitude we see in our society where basically we just grab anybody that's got a warm body if they say that, man, I love God, and especially if they're a movie star, if they're a sports figure, if they're a politician, if they're somebody who's already got a name and recognition, it doesn't matter anything about the maturity level. Let's arm them, man, put them on the platform. Let's get them to sharing their faith. That violates what Paul said over in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about not putting a novice in a position of authority. Here's the point that I'm making. Some people say, but you've got to do everything you can to reach everybody. Jesus was more concerned with the quality of ministry here than he was the quantity of ministry. That's what this is saying. He wouldn't commit himself to him because he didn't want man testifying out of their own ability. He didn't want somebody testifying just from themselves because you know what? It would have backfired on him. We're so big with statistics, but consider these statistics. You know, we talk about how many people get born again at a rally or something. But I remember Catherine Kuhlman, her own estimate, she used to say this all of the time, that 85% of all of the people who got healed or transformed at her meetings lost their healing. There was just a very small percentage, 15% is what Catherine Kuhlman said, that actually retained 
their healing and had a lasting impact. Only 15%. Again, I heard somebody else quote Billy Graham as saying that only 15% of all people who profess to be Christians are truly born again. If that be true, well then when we have a crusade and we see a thousand people come to the Lord, you know what that means? There's only 150 that really got changed. And out of those 150, some are going to bear 30, some 60, some 100 fold. There's just going to be a small portion of those that are going to genuinely change. And what happens with the 850 who profess the name? Not only did we inoculate them against the gospel so that no longer do they feel this conviction, and if conviction comes, they go back and say, oh, I've prayed the prayer, and so everything's okay. Not only did we inoculate them, but have you ever heard anybody say, I would have been a Christian if I hadn't meant one? What about those hypocrites down there at the church? We're so big at counting statistics, but how many people have been turned off by the people who've gone out and done terrible things in the name of the Lord? For instance, Mahatma Gandhi, who God used, or I don't know if God used, somebody used to bring the revolution in India and uh, free all of those people. He was actually exiled in Africa and he got to seeking the Lord and he read the Bible, read the New Testament. And he was absolutely convinced that Christianity was the true religion, that Jesus was the Christ. And he went to a Presbyterian church service in India for the purpose of confessing Jesus as his Lord. And because he was black, they wouldn't let him in. And he's the one that said, I would have been a Christian if I hadn't have meant one. Those people who were so evangelistic, they were going to go out and change Africa, and yet they didn't have enough nature of God on the inside of them to actually recognize that the color of a person's skin wouldn't prevent them from being a believer, turned Mahatma Gandhi against Christianity, and he led, what is it, 750 million people into the pagan religions. Now, if you want to count statistics, how about counting those kind of statistics? When I was in India, I was over there and I ministered in a church that had 600 and something people in it. And you know what? They were still wearing their Hindu marks in their forehead. And I got to talking and asking around. And there was 12,000 Methodists in Ahmedabad, the city that I was in. And there was a great revival in the 1890s. And there was lots of people born again through the Methodist movement in Ahmedabad, India. Because they got born again, but they didn't grow. They didn't mature and they didn't disciple. Well, the next generation that was born, they weren't Hindus. They weren't Buddhists, so they called themselves Christians. But you know what? By the time I got there, out of these 600 people, I asked the guy who was the head over the whole city how many of those Methodists he thought were truly born again. And he said... Oh, man, there might be one or maybe two families out of 12,000 that are born again. The rest of them, he says, they're still worshiping their other gods. I actually have a picture of a shrine that has Hare Krishna, Hare Lamb, and Buddha all in one shrine burning incense to all of them. And I remember coming back on the plane with a guy who went over, and he supposedly had tens of thousands born again. Man, I had maybe 15 families born again out of two weeks. And he had 15,000, and I was asking him. I didn't tell him anything about what I'd seen. I just got to asking him. I said, how did you do all of this? And I said, did you tell these people that Jesus is the only way to the Father? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come unto the Father except through me. Did you counter that Hare Krishna, Hare Lam, Buddha are not gods? He said, oh, no, God gave me a lot of wisdom. God told me to just tell them about Jesus and have them make a commitment to Jesus, and then Jesus would clean them up and take care of everything else. 
Well, see, the Buddhist, the Hindu mentality over there, they have 350 million gods. And if you say, Jesus is God, how many of you would like to make Jesus your God? They'll all come forward because he's just one more. They don't want to miss one. If you were to add up all of the people that have been born again in India through crusades, it amounts to more than the population of India. Here's the point that I'm making is that, you know what, the way we've chosen to present salvation, instead of saying become a disciple, are you willing to make a commitment to the Lord, are you willing to go on? Instead, it's just, man, repeat this prayer and you got it. Now again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe people get born again that way. And I still have people repeat a prayer with me. There's nothing wrong with that as long as we don't say, this is it, you're saved. As long as we say, now this is what you need to say. But if we present discipleship and commitment to the Lord, and here's the way you begin the process, I still think people get born again that way. I still pray with people. But I'm just saying that we need to recognize that the Lord called us to make disciples. Jesus did not go make converts. And when many believed on him, he wouldn't even commit himself unto them because he knew what was in man. If Jesus didn't accept them and commit anything to them, why do we do it? Why aren't we following the example of the Lord. And again, I believe it's because of short-term thinking. We're thinking, but man, we could have seen a hundred people come forward instead of five. But you know what? If those five are truly born again, and if they're going on with the Lord, the end results would be that they would change the world more. It would have more of a positive impact than to have a hundred people and then have 95 of them go out and still continue to drink and carouse and do everything else and present a bad witness and turn all of the people against the gospel. Thank you for that thunderous silence. Look in the eighth chapter of the book of John. Here's some scriptures that we use. The points we're making are not incorrect. I hope nobody thinks I'm trying to attack. It's like, you know, Apollos, that who was it? Priscilla and Aquila took him and explained unto him the way of God more perfectly. I just believe that we've been watered down the message. We need to be more accurate in what we're presenting. But here's scriptures that we use all of the time. In a sense, we're actually misusing them. The eighth chapter is where Jesus had this woman taken in the act of adultery who was forgiven. And then he went on and started talking about he and the Father were one and many people opposed him and stuff. And it says in verse 30, John 8, 30, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We use verse 32 to say you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And that is not incorrect. That's correct. But it's more correct to say that it's when you continue in the Word, then you know the truth and the truth sets you free. And it's when you continue in the Word that you become a disciple indeed. And notice who he was speaking this to. In verse 30 it says, He spake to those who were believing on Him. These people believed on Jesus. And this was in the setting of an antagonistic crowd where people were rejecting him. But there was a small group over here believed on him. They believed that Jesus was the Christ. And to those people who believed on him, he said, if you continue in my word, then you will be my disciple indeed, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth doesn't just instantly set a person free. You have to know it, and the only way you can know it is to continue in the Word, and there is a growth process. And then look what he said. They answered him and said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? You know what Jesus was doing? 
He was saying, if you continue in my word. Now, here was the Old Testament law, but Jesus, he didn't violate, he didn't void the Old Testament, but he fulfilled it, and Jesus preached a better way. He preached instead of the animal sacrifices and the keeping of the law, it was faith in him. And basically what he was saying is, you are no longer going to approach God through these animal sacrifices, through the fact that you're a Jew. It's through your faith in the Messiah, the Savior. If you continue in my word, then you're going to be made free. They basically said, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bodies. In other words, why should we commit ourselves totally to you? We've got a Jewish heritage. They had faith in that. It was their position in Abraham that was going to grant them their relationship with God. They began to start balking at this as he began to draw them further into following him. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He had just said you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now he says the son shall make you free. He's using those interchangeably. In other words, the son was the truth. He was the way, the truth, and the life. In the beginning was the word. The word was God. He says, I know that you are Abraham's seed. In other words, he acknowledged their genealogy. But you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. Remember, he's speaking to those who believed on him. And he says, you do that which you've seen with your father. Verse 29, they answered him. Who's they? They that believed on him. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, if you were Abraham's children... You would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Man, he's just rubbing their nose in this. And they said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. In other words, they were saying, Jesus, we acknowledge you as a great man. We acknowledge you as a great leader, but for you to be the only way, are you saying that our Jewish heritage doesn't grant us favor with God. It doesn't grant us right standing with God. Are you saying we have to forsake all of that and put our total faith in you? Yeah, that's what he was saying. And he kept saying, you aren't my children. You're of your father the devil. And man, they were offended at this. They said unto him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. This is those who believed on him. You know what? This violates a lot of the way that we're presenting the gospel. If a person believes on the Lord, that's fine. Jesus told people who believed on him, you're of your father, the devil. That was not true salvation. I don't know exactly how to present this. In a sense, I'm opening up a can of worms. But I'm just trying to get across and say that there's more to it than just, oh, yeah, Jesus, you're my Lord. And then you go out and live like the devil. Now, I'm not saying that your actions produce salvation. I believe a person can be born again and still commit gross sins. I really do. And I believe that the Scripture teaches grace and I am not preaching performance and that you're saved according to your holiness. But I am saying that there is more to believing than just mouthing some words. There needs to be a greater commitment in the hearts of people. And I really believe that we are pronouncing many people born again who have never gone on. 
And really, this wouldn't even be an issue if we would just follow things and do it the way God told us. He didn't tell us to preach conversion and then maturity and seeking the Lord as step two, three, four, five. If we would do it the way the Lord said, where we preach that, man, you need to make a commitment to Him. He needs to be Lord over your life. You need to become a disciple. And if we preach that... Then when the person prays the prayer, you don't know for sure whether they really are sincere or not. But you know what? If the goal isn't just getting saved, and if they don't just stop there, but if the goal is to become a disciple, you would start seeing the nature of Christ working these people. You would start seeing evidence that their life was changed, and it would take care of itself. It really would. I believe that we've actually complicated the thing, and we've given a lot of people false hope. I remember when I was in Vietnam, I was witnessing to this one guy. Man, he was so close to being born again. I'd been witnessing to him for weeks. He just, on one Saturday night, he spent most of Saturday night crying and telling me the reasons he couldn't get born again, but you could tell the Holy Ghost was dealing with him. I was a chaplain's assistant, and so I had to assist the Catholic chaplain. I didn't have to participate in his service, but I had to set everything up, and I had to be there and stuff like that. So I set up the service. This guy went to Catholic Mass. And I was standing outside waiting on him to come out of the Catholic Mass. And I was going to start on him again. And I got him and I started talking to him and he was just totally different. And I said, what happened? And he says, you know, I was really convicted last night and I was afraid I was going to hell. But he says, as I walked out of that church, the Catholic chaplain goes, I absolve you of all of your sin. And he says, it's taken care of. He says, I don't need to talk to you anymore. He says, I'm doing it the way the Catholics do it. And because he was absolved of his sin, he just totally ignored and threw off everything I was saying to him. You know what? A lot of charismatics, in a sense, do the same thing. We don't go, I absolve of your sins, but just repeat this prayer after me and you got it. You don't know if they got it. You can know whether they said the words, but you don't know if they meant it. Again, we shouldn't preach that that's salvation. We ought to preach that being a disciple is what God's called them into. And it starts with making a commitment to the Lord. And you don't know whether the person's really committed just because they repeated words. If the point was discipleship, then people would come through that. And as they start being discipled, you could see these changes in their life. And I really believe that discipleship is what God's called us to present. This whole concept of just, let's get them converted. Let's go out and make a thousand converts. That's like a person that says, man, I love to see babies born. This is awesome. They just love it. So they want to be there at every birth. And then as soon as they get the baby born, well, let's go get another one. Well, you know what? When you bring that baby into the world, you've got a responsibility. If you just get a child born and throw him over in the corner and say, praise God, if they're human, they'll live. You know what? You're going to be responsible for a lot of deaths and you're accountable for that kind of stuff. In a sense, that's what people do. We go out and lead thousands of people to the Lord and then we'll leave them. And if they're truly saved, they'll make it. That's not what the Lord says. You know, the thing ought to be to make disciples. Man, I wish I'd have brought my computer in here. I don't have this with me. But I figured out that, you know what, if you had one person that led a thousand people a year to the Lord, wonderful. But at the end of twelve and a half years, you'd have 12,500 Christians. And even though that would be wonderful, you know what, that wouldn't be a drop in the bucket compared to many cities. It wouldn't even change a city, much less a nation or a world. But if you had one person who is not leading people just into conversion, but leading people into being a disciple. And they only got one person born again every six months, but then they would take that person and they would just shut them up and disciple them and make them to where they are a radical Christian to where they could reproduce their faith. At the end of six months, you'd only have two Christians, whereas the other method would have 500. 
At the end of the year, you'd only have four Christians because both of those would go out and reproduce and then start discipling. So you'd have four Christians over here versus a thousand over here. But you know what? At the end of 12 and a half years, this method would evangelize more than six billion, whereas this method would have 12 and a half thousand. Some of you say, can't happen. Oh, have we got that in here? Okay, here you go. Thanks, Don. Anyway, 1,000 people a year to the Lord, 35,000 people in 35 years. In 10 years, leading a person to the Lord every six months and discipling them would produce 1,048,576. In 15 years, 1 billion people in 15 years. But the point is, can you see that evangelism is just a little bit better than conversion? But people are saying, but oh man, look, during that first year, there was only four people won, and there was 900 and something missed. But the Lord said for us to go make disciples, not to make converts. If we would follow God's method, you know, right here, we have basically 100 people. I've got this on my computer, too. If 100 people went out and you just evangelized one person and discipled them in a year's time, a hundred people like this, if I'm not mistaken, I believe in 10 years' time, it would be over 1 million people, not just converted, but 1 million disciples through a hundred people. In 20 years' time, it would be astronomical. The amount of people that a hundred people right here, if our deal was to go not just evangelize, but to get a person to where they became a disciple, a learner, a person who was walking with the Lord, who could reproduce their faith, you know what? We could go out and we could change this nation in 10 years. This group of people could change this nation in 10 years with discipleship versus evangelism. 